Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Market View on Money FM 89.3. Asia Pacific shares are tracking Wall Street this morning, and that means there's red across the screen. Tokyo down nearly 2%. Seoul is off a bit less than 1%. Sydney losing ground as well. Joining me as we try to figure out why, Ryan Huang, good morning. Morning, Michelle. Let's start this morning with a story that has markets abuzz, could be leading to high blood pressure for some investors as well. I am talking about minutes from the Federal Reserve's March policy meeting. Investors always read these minutes with interest, but they don't often contain such a clear message or signal a change of policy. But this time, the minutes appear to clearly signal that the Fed is taking a much more aggressive approach to containing inflation than previously expected on two fronts. How so, Ryan? Yeah, so it's quite interesting to see all the hawkish cues coming through in the past week. First, we had various Fed speakers talking, more Fed speakers to come, and then now we've got the FOMC minutes adding to the hawkish tone that's been coming through. And looking at those minutes, we have, first of all, a balance sheet reduction. That's the first headline. They are cutting their balance sheet, at least signals, or hinting that they'll do so come the May meeting by one point one trillion dollars a year. So that is around $95 billion a month. So this is worth noting because as recently as last month, they were buying bonds. So next month, when they have that meeting, it will not just be not buying bonds, they will also be cutting the bonds away from their balance sheet. So that's worth noting on top of the expected rate hikes that will also be coming through in the next meeting. So you've got two things happening, the rate hike and the reduction in bonds. So that is just lifting the hawkish expectations of where things are going for rate path policy. And talking about the rate hikes, we are looking at possibly 50 basis points. So in the minutes, we found out that they were actually thinking about 50 basis points in the meeting three weeks ago. But because of what's happening in Ukraine, they decided to hold off on it until they could get more clarity. But it looks like um, coming into the next meeting, based on what I've been hearing from the various FAT members, 50 basis points is what we could get. And maybe not just in the next meeting, but in the next, next meeting as well. And in the next, next, next one as well. So that is how high inflation expectations are right now. The U.S. economy is actually booming right now. Employers are adding hundreds of thousands of jobs a month. Consumers are spending, businesses investing, but rising prices and the Fed's plans to contain inflation have markets on edge. Everyone's wondering, is there going to be a crash landing or as a Bloomberg headline puts it, does the Fed have to destroy the market in order to save it? What do you think? Well, there is a case for the Fed to do what it's doing. And that is with the inflation rates at near 40-year high. So it's quite noticeable if you look around you, prices of everything is going up. And it has also seen stock markets in the past few years going up as well. So at some point, you have to ask the question, you know, how high does it have to go to come back down again? And at some point, the Fed has to take away the punch bowl. And that is with the easy money policies. They've been flushing the um, markets with so much liquidity. So that's something that will be taken away very soon. Mm. And I think investors have to readjust to this new uh, normal where we won't have as 
liquid or have as much money in the markets, lifting all the assets with um, low interest rates. So that is going to change. So maybe you could see a bit of a correction when we do get the interest rates coming through. And that could be maybe a knee-jerk response where we get jitters feeding into the markets, people selling off. But in time to come, I think with the fundamentals of the economy, the US economy you know, picking up, the labor market is strong, at least uh, looking so right now. Uh, that could be something that could turn around in time to come when we do get that uh, fundamental shift in the economy. In terms of that waking up point, I think we're starting to see it. So far, the Fed has only increased rates by a quarter point, but there are already signs that rising interest rates are dampening demand for home purchases, at least over in the US. The latest stats show that mortgage applications down 40% from a year earlier. Ryan, markets sold off after investors read the Fed minutes. The Nasdaq closed down more than 2%, S&P 500 off one If we look a little closer, we see that tech and consumer discretionary stocks, they're down, but consumer staples are up. What does this tell us? Yeah, so what we are looking at is on Wednesday, the consumer discretionary stocks fell 2.6%, while consumer staples were up 1.4%. So this is perhaps signaling that investors see that as a more defensive play with um, the tech sector names or growth names, um, just a bit more sensitive to the higher rates to come. So investors thinking that's where they can find shelter because um, this is what people need, whatever scenario it is. They need to buy those staples. Uh, consumer stocks in that sector uh, will be resilient enough to weather it. And that is, I think, what we could see in the coming quarters as well. All right, next up, I want to turn to another major market overhang, the Russian war in Ukraine and concerns about a Russian debt default. Yesterday, we talked about new U.S. sanctions on Russia, how they're intended to force Moscow into draining its reserves, possibly even defaulting on overseas payments. How has Moscow responded? All right, Moscow has tried to pay, but of course, we know sanctions have been slapped on Russia. So they've been trying to pay in rubles. No one wants rubles because that's not what the terms or contracts were set up in, which is euros, dollars, and most of the time, that is the case. So there is no one able to take what the Russian side is trying to pay. So that is where they are right now. A bit of a stalemate. So according to Russia, they say they can pay, but technically they can't because the payment terms are not acceptable based on the contract. So that's um, what's happening right now with Russia. So whether or not Russia is on the march to a historic debt default really in the hands of its foreign debtors, what do you make of it? I mean, if Russia's payment in rubles is rejected, what do you think the potential implications for markets would be? Yeah, it's quite uncharted territory. So it's quite a tough one to call. But if you look at the signs that are there, that are already playing out, um, we are already effectively seeing Russia unable to do many things. So effectively... It's already in some form default. They are cut off from the financial system uh, ever since uh, actually 2014 when they annexed Crimea. So that has already seen them face a few sanctions. And if you look, if you think about it, they can't pay. So the people trying to get money from them will be ones who lose out. So they will not be able to get paid. And these are typically the um, Western banks who have been holding on to Russian bonds. So the question is, how much exposure do they have? Going by some reports, they don't have a lot of exposure to worry about, at least relatively, um, because of what happened in 2014 with Crimea. So they were already trimming down exposure, 
partly due to the um, sanctions, which were already then uh, put in some form back in 2014. So they are going to be hurt a little. But um, if you look the thing about it, Russia is already cut off from the financial system in many forms. So a default typically means people will be scared to land you further, to work with you anymore. But that is already happening with what's playing out. All right, let's turn to the workplace. Slightly happier story. An annual survey by LinkedIn of the top places to work in the US. LinkedIn's top companies lists uh, and tracks career advancement potential, skills growth, company stability, diversity, and more. And it even has a list here in Singapore. So who tops that list here in Singapore? What is the number one company, according to LinkedIn, to work at here? Yeah, if you are looking for a job, maybe this should be at the top of your list. Unilever is number one, at least according to LinkedIn, (laughs) who are ranked the number one Singapore best workplace, followed by Stanchart and Prudential. So why is Unilever number one? So according to LinkedIn, uh, this is due to its various um, upskilling schemes and flexible work arrangements. So it's up two places from last year's ranking. So a couple of things it's been doing is, for example, a permanent hybrid working arrangement Mm. and also redesigning its office space to include quiet zones with height-adjustable desks and open collaboration. So I think this could be what people actually want. Do you think hot desking is on its way out? That has been quite a contentious um, area of debate Um, because some people like it, some people don't. And I've seen how hot desking has played out in some offices where people go back to the same desk and park their stuff there anyways because they are just creatures of habit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They just like the same view. I mean, in this day and age where we don't want to touch what other people are touching and health considerations are such an important part of the office, I'm just wondering if, um, you know, Unilever's really got it right. Permanent hybrid working arrangements, better use of office space, quiet zones, height adjustable desks, I suppose uh, standing and, and working is a new norm. It seems to be that way. People want to just um, work the way they want to. And if they have options, I think that is what gives them um, that hop in the step when they I walk to the office. That's a good point. It is about hyper-customization uh, when it comes to the new role of the office and collaboration as well, right? So Unilever takes top spot. Standard Chartered Prudential are next the top-ranked local company on LinkedIn's best places to work, OCBC. Yeah, OCBC was number one. Mm. Now they are number four. So still somewhere at the top and they are now working on what's called a future smart program to focus on digitalization for its employees. So I guess um, they might have some work to do for next year's ranking. Yeah, OCBC falling from top spot. It has accelerated its program, though, to focus on digitalization for its employees. Apparently, uh, people involved in the future of work say employee engagement and support is more important now than ever. So how about in the US? What's the top-ranked company there? I'm, I was surprised to see mm. this as number one. Yeah, this is interesting. <laughs> Amazon, not a name you might usually associate with the best place to work. So that's according to the LinkedIn ranking again. (laughs) That's right. A lot of protests um, about pay per hour. Yeah, a lot of negative headlines in not just the past year, in many years. So why is it the best place to work? Okay, so I think this is where how it is ranked and what is being used to rank comes into play. So if you look at a LinkedIn study, it's based on a couple of pillars, seven of them. Ability to advance, 
skills growth, company stability, external opportunity, company affinity, gender diversity, and spread.